Open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, you should know that this is the fourth week we've been in Matthew chapter 5, and we've got a few more weeks um, in this chapter before we get ourselves all the way to chapter 6. It's funny how it works that way. Uh, but we are working through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this is a text that we're most likely familiar with, right? We think about the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's one of the most often quoted, um, usually out of context, by the way, but quoted pieces of Scripture. And so we have a flavor for what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Uh, but as we really have been digging into how Jesus unpacks it, I want you, at least for a second, to try to hear it the way that his original audience would have. Right? So here we have Jesus um, speaking as a man with authority. Now, I want you to understand the difference. Jesus is a man with authority. He is not a man under authority. Which is one of the reasons why the Pharisees and the scribes don't necessarily want to take him seriously. He has no training. He has no rabbi that he's been attached to. He didn't attend one of the rabbinic schools. Right? And the way that you became a rabbi, the way that you became a teacher, was that, that you associated yourself with somebody that was clearly over you. And you would follow them around and you would learn from them and they would teach you. Or you would go to one of the rabbinic schools and you would learn from them and they would teach you. And then when you went out to speak, you weren't speaking with your own authority. You were speaking under their authority. Right? You would be talking about like, well, but I was trained under Nicodemus and Nicodemus taught us this way. Right? I was trained under this person, and this person taught us this way. And so you'd be teaching, but not with your own authority. The reason that John and Jesus were so difficult for the Pharisees, even before they even got in to what the actual message was, the reason they were so difficult for the Pharisees is because they weren't under anyone's authority except God's. And that was mind-boggling. Whenever you read that Jesus taught as one with authority, it seems like, oh, okay, well, sure, that means he taught passionately. Well, lots of people talk passionately. It doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? I don't know if you know this, but there are people that are passionately wrong, right? They have strong beliefs and conviction, and they can drive the points, and they can, it doesn't matter if you're wrong. So when it says Jesus taught with authority, it doesn't mean he taught with conviction and passion. It means he taught in a wholly different way than the others. His authority came from God, not from a human teacher. He didn't need a middleman. And so what happens is he's, he's delivering this sermon on the mountain. People are listening and he is on the surface anyway, he's challenging everything they've been taught under the rabbinic tradition. Right? And he's talking about how to live this blessed life. He's talking about how to, how to embrace and accept and even find joy in persecution. He's talking about what it means to really be salt and light. And to an audience that's listening without completely understanding, it feels confusing. 
Because to a degree, it feels like he's pushing back against everything they've been taught. It's like, this is what the blessed life looks like. Right? This is, this is what the blessed behavior looks like. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is what it means to be salt and light. It's not what you've learned. It's this. And all of a the sudden, there would be this tension. And these guys would look at the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they'd been looking to them all their life. See, there's this thing called the Old Covenant. When we say Old Covenant, we mean Old Testament law, right? The books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you've read through those, good on you. Just out of curiosity, who has started and finished Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Good job. Who has started, and then you got like halfway through Leviticus, and you thought, I'm going to skip ahead to Judges. (laughs) I get it. But it's worth reading. It's worth reading. But So so you get these books of law, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, this this, um, law, and then you get the prophets and all of the things they said, and we call this the Old Covenant. We know it as the Old Testament. This is the Old Covenant that had all of the laws that Israel was supposed to follow. And the authority of the Old Covenant, of the law, were the Pharisees, scribes, and teachers of the law. And so the regular people looked to the Pharisees to know how to live and how to be holy. And then Jesus comes along, and we'll see this at the end of our text today. Jesus comes along and he says, unless your righteousness is better than theirs you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so now there's this this tension. I've looked to these people my entire life to figure out how to live holy and how to be acceptable to God. They are the gold standard. And now Jesus, this, this teacher that has such authority directly from God, comes to me and he says, hey, by the way, unless your righteousness is better than theirs, unless you are more holy than they are, Forget it. None of this is for you. And there's confusion, right? Because we don't yet know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Now, the good news is he's not going to let them go home before he explains it, right? As he continues to unpack in this Sermon on the Mount, as he continues to get deeper and deeper, he's going to be explaining to them how it is that they can obtain this righteousness. And the truth that the righteousness comes from him. And this is what what he's dealing with specifically in the text we look at today. He's trying to teach them this one thing. Holiness does not come from external behavior. Holiness comes from a clean heart, and then you demonstrate it through external behavior. See, the Pharisees had this wrong. This is one of the things that Jesus is trying to clean up. The Pharisees had taught and acted like and behaved like them acting in a moralistic way was the thing that mattered. That as long as they behaved themselves, as long as they did certain things, they were going to be okay. But Jesus is trying to remind them here. He's trying to show them through all of this, this entire 
um, sermon that he's giving, all of this teaching that, no, 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 it was actually never about your behavior. Your behavior was only a side effect. It was always supposed to be about your heart. And that's not a new teaching that Jesus is giving, right? Look at what God says in Psalm 50. For my people, listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you, O Israel. This is God saying, I've got a bone to pick with you, Israel, right? And, and my bone to pick with, with you isn't about your sacrifices. It's not about you following the letter of the law. Good for you, you followed the letter of the law. Right? I have no complaint about your sacrifices. I have no complaint about the bird offerings you constantly offer. But here's the deal. He says, I don't need that stuff. I don't need bulls from your barns or goats from your pens. All of the animals of the forest are mine. He's like, did you forget who I am? Right? Did you think that this was all just about giving me a sacrifice? It's not just about giving me a sacrifice. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He keeps going. I know every bird on the mountains and all of the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? He's like, listen, I've got a bone to pick with you, but it's not about your sacrifices. It's about your heart. He's like, make thankfulness your sacrifice to me. Stop going through the motions and make thankfulness your sacrifice. Keep the vows you made. Yes, keep the vows. Follow the law. Make the sacrifices. Do all of those things. But fix your heart. And then I love here what, 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 what he says to the wicked. But God says to the wicked, why do you bother? Stop doing religious things because it's not helping you. Why do you bother reciting my decrees and pretending to obey my covenant? right? Because your heart is so far away from me. See, what Jesus is teaching with the Sermon on the Mount, it's not new. It's always been the idea. God always instituted these external things so that our hearts would be close to him, and then this external behavior would flow. But somehow they got sidetracked, and the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of law had a lot to do with that. So, here, here it is, one more time. Just um, some of you would be like, why does he always repeat himself? And other people would be like, oh, that's the one. Now I got it. Whichever camp you're in, take note of this. God wants your heart. Period. Now, the truth is, when God owns your heart, your behavior, your righteousness will necessarily start to flow. But God does not want your behavior. God wants your heart. God is desperate for your heart. He's not desperate for your activity. And you've got to get this, right? Because this is the thing. When he says your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the laws, or, or you don't have anything to do with me, Right? Later, we're going we're gonna to read in the Sermon on the Mount, we get to chapter 7, he's going to tell people that thought they were good, depart from me. I never knew you. And those are going to be people that said, well, wait a minute, God, we did all of these religious things. And he's going to say, it wasn't ever about religious things. It's about your heart. And if I don't have your heart, then you're not with me. 
God wants your heart. All right, so let's dig in. Matthew 17, we're going we're gonna to go through verse 20 here, and we're going to see how Jesus unpacks this truth, that he just, he wants your heart and how this plays with the old covenant and this thing we're going to learn called the new covenant. Jesus starts by saying, don't misunderstand. Right now, he's, he's given the Beatitudes, and he's given this speech about persecution, and he's talked about being salt and light. And now, moving on from here, he's about to say some things that are real hard. Like next week, he's going to say, oh, by the way, remember when we said don't murder people? That means you can't even be angry or hate them. Remember when I said don't have sex with somebody that's not your spouse? That means you can't even look lustfully at somebody else, right? He's, he's starting to, to tighten the grip on what some of this looks like and, and change some of these, these thoughts, right? Because it's not about what's on the outside. It's about what's on the inside, right? And, and so he's starting to change this, but he starts with this little preamble here. And he says, look, but, but please don't misunderstand. He's like, I have not come to abolish the law of Moses, or the writings of the prophets, because that was one of the common complaints about Jesus, was that he had come on the scene, he had nobody that was in authority over him, and he was changing everything they'd ever learned, right? He was changing what Moses taught. He was changing what God had instructed Moses to teach the people. And Jesus is saying, time out, that's not fair. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the prophets. I didn't do that. See, but it wasn't just the authority that he had, right? It was his, it, it was his actions. Jesus commonly healed on the... In fact, he went out of his way to heal on the Sabbath and to teach that, that the Sabbath wasn't for God, it was for man. He went out of his way to do that. He went out of his way to, to buck the traditions of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had this weird tradition. It's not in the Bible, but they had this tradition before you would eat, you had to do this ceremonial washing of the hands. And it wasn't about scrubbing your hands clean with soap. It was just taking some water that had been blessed and, and you're doing this like, now I'm clean, right? And it was just a tradition that they had, right? They wouldn't even, listen, if you, if you were a man, you weren't even allowed to physically touch a woman that wasn't your wife. Like, I don't read that in the first five books. You can go back and read them if you haven't. It's not in there, right? Like, like if I touch somebody on the shoulder, it's not like, oh, now I'm unclean. But the Pharisees had a tradition that says, no, you can't do that, right? Just, in fact, if you're walking down the road, and, and you should probably cross to the other side just to keep yourself extra clean. They had all kinds of traditions. And so they're telling Jesus, you're not teaching the Mosaic law. And Jesus is saying, time out. I'm not teaching your traditions. But I've never once gone against the Mosaic law. He says, I didn't come here to abolish the Mosaic law. I'm just not doing your brand of it. And, and they were mad at him too, right? Because what do they always call him? Jesus, the, the friend of sinners, that he ate and drank with sinners and tax collectors. Right? And, and remember how they acted when, when the woman came and cried all over his feet and wiped his feet with her hair and broke the perfume and anointed him. And they were like, man, if he only knew, if he only knew what kind of woman she was, there's no way he would even let her near him. But Jesus says, this is in no way breaking the Mosaic law, right? She's doing a good thing. Jesus is challenging what they've been teaching. He says, I didn't come 
to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. Right? In fact, he says this. He says, I came to accomplish their purpose. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to accomplish their purpose. And the Pharisees were not accomplishing their purpose. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees, what's he say? What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look great. You look righteous. Inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is what he tells them. He says, like, outwardly you look fine. You're going through the motions. You're making your sacrifices. You're praying publicly. You're saying the right words. You're doing all of the right outside things. But your heart, your heart is wicked, and you know it. Woe to you. What sorrow awaits you? And Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. You are perverting it. I came to see it come to fruition. You know what the Old Testament law was like? Law was like a mirror. Do me a favor. Raise your hand if when you look in the mirror in the morning, like first thing, you get out of bed, you go into the bathroom, and you look in the mirror. Who is really satisfied? You're like, yep, I'm ready to go for the day. This is going to make it all day long. I'm going to be honest with you. It's easier for me than it is for you. Well, it's easier for Chad and I. Jim's got me, right? For some of us, we're like, yep, it's a whole lot easier for us. Sometimes my beard gets a little too bushy, and I, I look in the mirror, and it's like out here. I'm like, well, I don't have to comb my hair, but I got to comb my beard, right? But, but most of us, we look in the mirror, and the mirror is a reflector for us. It tells us what we best fix before we go out the door. Wash your face. Clean it up right? Brush your teeth, comb your hair, put on your makeup, straighten your tie, whatever it is that you do to get ready in the morning. Here's the catch though. The mirror can't do those things for you. That's not the mirror's job. The mirror simply reflects what needs to happen. And that's what the old covenant was, the old law. That's what it did. It simply showed us our need. It simply showed us where we were sinners, right? Romans tells us that, that every person is a sinner, that every person has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Well, how do I know that? The law shows me that. The law shows me my need. It reflects it to me. The law shows me that, you know what? Compared to a holy God, I fall short every day. Compared to some of you, I'm rocking it. Compared to some of you, I am terrible at it. Compared to a holy God, I will never make it. That's what the law does to us. The law changes our vision. So I'm not comparing myself to these other people that I see and know. Am I more righteous than you or am I less righteous than you? Am I better than you? Am I worse than you? Do I behave as well? Do I not behave as well? The law shows me none of that matters. The law fixes my eyes on a holy God and says, how do you stack up now? And it shows me my need. And it shows me that no matter what I do, I am never going to be right with a holy God. Because I can't be good enough. I'm wicked. My heart is wrong. 
I do things that are wrong. Even when I try really hard to do right things, wrong seems to find me. That's what the law does. The law shows us our need. Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says the law was like a tutor, a guardian. He says, let me, let me put it another way. The, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law's job was to kind of be over us for just a minute, right? It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. How did the law protect us? Well, it did two things. One, it showed us like a mirror. It showed us our need. The law shows me my need, right? I can never match up. I can never get on the same level as God. I have a huge need. The law shows me my need, but then the law also provided me this temporary provision, temporary ways so that God would forgive me of my wrongness, my sinfulness, and I could worship him and he could have a relationship with me and we could be together. The law was our guardian, our tutor, and it protected us for a while. I would make a sacrifice and the blood of the lamb, the blood of the the calf, the blood of the goat, whatever it was, would cover me and it would pay for me so that my wrong could be overlooked It would pay the price so that my wrong could be overlooked and I'd be all right with God until next time. It was temporary. It was a tutor. It was a guardian until Christ came. It kept me safe by allowing me this way to be okay with God, to be connected to God. But it only did that until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, We no longer need the law as our guardian. We don't need it anymore. It's not arbitrary. Like the fact that we're not sacrificing calves and and lambs and sprinkling blood all over. I mean, think about it. That's what they did. They all gathered close. They'd sacrifice. They'd catch the blood in a bowl. They'd dip a little branch in it and they'd all over the people. It's kind of gross. We didn't just stop doing that because we're like, man, I don't like it. We stopped doing it because we don't need it anymore. They loved it. They embraced it. Why? Because it was their way to be right with God. But we don't need that because the way of faith has come. When Jesus says, look, look what Jesus says. He's like, look, man, I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses and the prophets. In fact, he says, I've always followed it. He said, but I did come to fulfill it. Well, what does it mean that he came to fulfill it? Think of an acorn. There's two ways to deal with, to destroy, to change an acorn. One destroys it, one fulfills it. Right? I could take an acorn, I could set it on the table, and I could get a hammer, and I could smash it to bits. And that is destroyed. It's no longer good. It'll accomplish no purpose. Or, I could take that acorn... And I could plant it, and I could let it become what it always was intended to be. I could let it be fulfilled, right? It would cease to be, but it would become something more than it was. It would become an oak tree. I'm right, right? Acorns and oaks, they go together. I was going to go maple tree with all those helicopters that land in your yard, 
but none of those are intentional. They start to grow trees all the time, and I walk around trying to pull them up out of my yard. Then I get mad at True Green because I'm like, what am I paying you for that I have to do this myself? And it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. In Bettendorf, we had three of those trees, three of them in our not big yard. Cut them all down. That makes some of you upset, but trust me, it was worth it. (laughs) Get in the gutters and clog up and then get water in the basement. It was bad. Anyway, right? But an acorn, right? You take an acorn and, and it's not meant to be this. This is a temporary state. It's meant to be fulfilled and to become what it was always supposed to be. Jesus says, that's, that's what I'm doing for the law. I didn't come to abolish the law. I followed the law. But in me, that law is going to become what it was always intended to be. Right? We don't need it anymore. You don't need the old covenant anymore. You don't need the old law, the law of Moses. That was your tutor, your protector for a time. But now... I'm here. You no longer need a guardian because now the law will become what it was always intended to be. Right? And this is changing. This is different way of thinking. This is Jesus saying, you know what? Here's the deal. Your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You can't do that. But let me become what the law was always about. I'm going to show you a better way, the way of faith the way to be right with God. I came to accomplish the purpose. See, when Jesus came, the word of God uh, had become something different. You had the word of God and its beauty and purity. And then what had happened is the Pharisees had taken all of those extra rules and they'd started adding on adding on. You had the word of God, but then you had all of the extra, all of the extra that had been put on to the word of God. So what Jesus has to do first is he has to start to break away the crust of religious tradition that that is getting in the way. He has to start to clean it all off and to wash it away so we can see the word for what it's supposed to be. And the word for what it's supposed to be is that God wants your heart. Because he is righteous and you are not. And if you have any chance of being right with him, he needs your heart. And then Jesus says, I am going to fulfill the law and I will be the way of faith. I'm what the Old Testament was always pointing to. Right? But he has to clean away all of the garbage. By the way, we have to do that sometimes. A fancy word for that is called reformation. Reformation is just cleaning away the garbage. And by garbage, we mean well-intended, extra-religious stuff. Right? You know about the the Reformation in the 1400s with Martin Luther breaking away and, and teaching a new way to understand Scripture. Well, it wasn't a new way to understand Scripture. All he was doing in the 1400s is saying, hey, I got a, a novel idea. What if we just start with the Bible? And every generation, we have to have these moments where we have to break away all of the crust of religious nonsense and garbage and wash it clean, right? And and we have to just get back to, what does the Bible say about these things? It's one of the ways that Reformation works, right? Um, is, Is if we look at this, and we're reading this, and we're saying, huh, this seems a lot different from everything going on around us. Everything in the name of God, it doesn't really match up to what I'm reading as I read God's word. It's probably at that point in time for some reformation, 
right? Time to break away some of the other things and get back to the basics of what God says. But that's what he's doing. He's breaking away all of this other stuff and he's saying the law is always, if you go back and read the law, it's always about your heart. I want your heart, right? God wants your heart, not your behavior. Your behavior is important, but it's important because it flows from your heart, not because you're trying real hard to do the right thing so God will think you're okay. He says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I'm transforming the law. I'm fulfilling the law. The law is becoming what it was always about, which is me. He says, and until that's accomplished, the law will never pass away. He says, uh, some of your versions say the jot and tittle, jot like, like the smallest dot in, in um, the Hebrew language, which is like the little dot on an I, and a tittle is like the difference, the, the line of demarcation that t- makes a P into an R, right? He's like, just these little subtle things, none of it is going to go away, right? Until, um, until it's time. Till heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Well, that's going to happen when Jesus returns to conquer and creates a new heaven, a new earth. We read about that in Revelation. That's when we can stop worrying about the law. It's like, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I did come to fulfill it, and it will stand until the end. So if you were an astute congregation, you would have some questions for me then about the law. You would want to know, well, if the law is going to stand until the end, what parts of the law stand? Why don't we follow all of it? Why do we get to eat shrimp? Who likes shrimp? We've talked about this. Who loves bacon? Good on you. It's enjoyable, right? Like we get to do these things. Why do we get to do that? If the law stands until heaven and earth pass away, why in the world am I not following the law? What parts of the law stand? What parts of the law do we get to dismiss? See, this is one of the areas where we as Christians get accused of a lot of things. As Christians, we get accused of playing it fast and loose with the law. Because we will say things like, hey, right? There are certain things that are morally wrong. They're in the law. There are other things in the law that we will say, eh, we don't care about those. And people from the outside looking in will say, that's arbitrary, that's hypocritical, that's you picking and choosing, stop it, I don't have to listen to you. I had Carrie check, she couldn't read it, so I had to check a different shirt. My shirt is a cotton poly blend. I know, you're impressed. I think almost all shirts are a cotton poly blend. 65% cotton, I don't know if that's good. 35% polyester. This shirt is against the Old Testament law. See, if you haven't finished Leviticus, if you started, but then you stopped, you don't know what I'm talking about. But it says in Leviticus that you will not wear clothes with mixed fabric. So deal with that. We are all collectively breaking the old covenant law, assuming you're not wearing 100% something. Also, the Old Testament law tells me that you are not allowed to mark up your skin in any way. So if you've got tattoos like the one I have, you didn't know I had one. I have one. It's up there. Um, 
I just always wear sleeves, so you've never seen it. Um, but if you've got a tattoo, you've broken the law. The law also says that sex is reserved for marriage in heterosexual relationships. Right? It says all of those things. So, and so from the outside looking in, right, I'm like, okay, so that one doesn't work for you, so you got rid of it. The tattoo one seems old-fashioned, so you got rid of that. But you care about this one, so we're still going to make a big deal about it. And I understand why it feels that way. Right? So the question that we have to be able to intellectually understand is, why do we have to follow some of the Old Testament law and why not others? And how do we know the difference? Are we just making it up as we go? And the answer is no. Of course not. Right? We're not just making it up as we go. Right? But there are different kinds of laws, and we're going to see how this is unpacked. The first kind of law in the Old Covenant is what we call the moral law. The moral law is about right and wrong. The moral law is about God's standard for morality and holiness. The moral law basically are the things that make up the Ten Commandments, give or take. The moral law are the things that never change. They never change. You never get to murder. You never get to murder. You never get to steal. You never get to dishonor your parents. <laughs> never get to dishonor your parents. You never get to have um, idols that you worship instead of God. You never get to have your neighbor's wife. It's just those are moral laws, right? It just doesn't work, right? You never, you never get to have sexual relationships with, with a family member. Like you're like, Matt, that's weird. I know. It's all over the moral law that God writes because it was, it was correcting something. Right? You just don't get to do that. That's the moral law that God teaches. The moral law is repeated and reinstituted in the New Testament. How do you know if there's a law that continues today? Well, the moral law continues today because Jesus teaches it, and then the epistles unpack it. Jesus teaches the moral law as he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount or in other areas where he's teaching his disciples or he's teaching the crowds and he's sharing these things, right? And then as the New Testament authors are traveling to the churches and establishing churches and strengthening the churches and rebuking the churches and correcting the churches and building them up, they're unpacking how to live out the moral law in this new context of the church. That's the law we follow. We follow it because it's been reinstituted in the New Testament. It's been reinstituted because it was very clearly about right and wrong. The ceremonial religious law, we don't follow this law anymore. This is the law that was for that time in that place under that old covenant of cleanness and uncleanness and how we establish ourselves as set apart so that we can bring our sacrifices, that law's gone, right? That's why God says to Peter, just eat it, man. It doesn't matter. Just eat it. 
It's why Jesus could touch the woman that was bleeding and menstruating, right, without being unclean, because that time, that law, that was a tutor to keep us until the time came. The time has come. The way of faith is here. That has now gone by the wayside. So listen, enter the sanctuary. If you've got, if you've got an open sore, I mean, don't rub it on anybody. That's weird and gross. But come worship with us. You don't have to go wait seven days outside of the camp. If you were at a funeral yesterday for, for someone that you love and you happen to touch a dead body, you're cool. You can still be. Shower. But you still get to be here. You don't have to go outside a camp and wait seven days. That's the ceremonial, the religious law. Wear the right kind of clothes. Don't eat food. This was never about right or wrong, right? This wasn't about moral or immoral. This was about setting yourselves apart for God. And the civil law, the civil law was specifically for Israel and how we care for one another. Things about the year of Jubilee. How do we treat the poor? Right? We still, we still love people and we still treat them well, but you know what? We don't cancel debts every 50 years. Right? If I sold you a house, you don't have to give it back to me at the year of Jubilee. But in the Old Testament law, in the civil law, that was the way that Israel was supposed to relate to each other. There were a lot of laws there. So, so when we understand, like when, when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill the law. Like that oak tree, right? Like that acorn. The law is now becoming what it was always intended to be. And that leaves us with a conundrum. What parts of the law still matter for us? Well, the parts of the law that still matter for us are the parts of the law that were reinstituted in the New Testament and they were unpacked by the, the apostolic writers. Those are the moral parts of the law. It's not arbitrary, right? We do this on purpose. We do it for um, a reason. And so Jesus finishes. He says, look, so if you ignore the least commandment and you teach others to do the same, then you're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, so this is basically Jesus saying, look, 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 the law is now fulfilled in me and you've got to follow it, right? When you connect to me through the cross, when you surrender to me, not defiant surrender, but when you full on surrender to me and you now belong to me, you can't dismiss the law of Christ. You know what the law of Christ is? Love God, love people. That's what he says. He says, look, you, this is the greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then you're like, Matt, what does it mean to love God and love people? Well, the, the New Testament authors unpack that for you. He says, and you can't dismiss any of it and expect you to be called righteous. And he says this last thing, right? But, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law, the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Because their righteousness was based on an external set of rules that they could follow, they could manipulate sometimes, they could check off their list. And Jesus says, I don't really, I don't focus on the external. Yeah, the external matters, but I focus on the heart. So we're going to wrap up here. 
I know, right? But we actually are going to wrap up here. Normally when I say that, we have 15 minutes left. Um, but we are actually going to wrap up. And, and here, here's what I want to encourage you in as, as, we, as we start to wrap up. What are you trusting in? I mean, this is, this is basically Jesus is, is saying this, this whole thing in these four verses here to map this out. He's like, your righteousness has to be better than the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of religious law. It has to be because their righteousness is all based on them. How is it based on them? Well, it's based on them because if they do the right things, then they think God has to accept them. If I make the right sacrifice, God has to bless me. If I say the right prayer, God has to give me. If I donate the right amount of money, if I put my money in the temple collection, if I do these things, if I give alms to the poor, if I go through all of these steps, then God is forced to accept me. And and it's a subtle wrong But it's wrong because what I'm really saying then, if that's my attitude, what I'm really saying then is those things are enough to save me. My alms are enough to save me. My saying the prayer is enough to save me. Me bringing the sacrifice to the temple, that's enough to save me. And what Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's where the Pharisees have got it all wrong. They expect those things to save them. But the old is gone and the new has come in its place. And the new is this. Jesus wants your heart. Right? That tutor, that protector, that teacher, that guardian, that's finished. The way of faith is here. Jesus wants your heart. So what are you trusting, man? Are you trusting the fact that you're a good person? It's pharisaical. Didn't work for the Pharisees, it won't work for you. Are you trusting the fact that, uh, that you said confirmation at one point in time, right? You stood in front of a church and you, um, you made a statement that said, hey, this is what I think, this is what I believe. You memorized it, you said it, but you didn't really know what it meant or you weren't following it. You just knew what you were supposed to say. Listen, that's pharisaical. That's not going to save you. Did you get baptized? Good on you. You should. I won't save you either. Parents do it to you when you're baby. They sprinkled you on your head and, and, and they blessed you and you're good to go. Listen, that's awesome. I ain't going to save you. Right? That's pharisaical. That's what Jesus is saying. Your righteousness has to surpass that. Do you do nice things for your neighbors? Great. Do you give to charity? Awesome. But your righteousness has to be better than that. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what Jesus' original audience was thinking. How can my righteousness get better than that? I'm spending all my time. I'm giving all my resources. I'm, I'm saying all the right things. I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm doing everything I can so that I'm doing all of the good. And Jesus says, that's not enough. You're like, well, if that's not enough, that's not fair. And I don't know what to do. That's why he's telling them, look, the way of faith is here. You can't. He says, but I can. Because I'm fulfilling what the law was. So it's through Jesus that we can have this righteousness. It's not your stuff. This is my encouragement to you. I said 15 minutes. It's been more like seven. But we're good, I promise. 
is Jesus. If you're trusting in anything other than your absolute unconditional surrender to Jesus, then you're pharisaical in the way that you're doing it. If you're trusting in your unconditional surrender to Jesus to save you, to hold you, to make you righteous, then and then alone are you right with God. The way of righteousness is a tall order and none can get there on their own. But through Jesus, the door is open for every single person that wants to walk through it. If you're here this morning and you are not unconditionally surrendered to Jesus Christ, this is what he became for you. He fulfilled the law for you so that you could walk through that door and you could be made right. Pray with me. Father God, we love you. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the law, the mirror that we look at that shows us our need. And and God, we thank you that you provided temporary provision to the people in ages past. But God, we are so blessed. And we thank you that the way of faith has come. And we confess to you that we know the way of faith to be Jesus Christ. And his death, sacrifice for our sins, and his resurrection from the dead. God, so that in him we are righteous and free. Father, I pray for those here that may not know you personally. I pray that this would be a moment where they would unconditionally surrender in the heart of hearts, in the depth of their being, that they would turn their lives over to you. God, and they would trust not their own righteousness, not their own good works, but God, that they would trust what you've accomplished for them on the cross. God, I pray, I pray that we would know in the depths of our being the way that you love us, have cared for us, and have provided for us. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we just thank you for who you are and what you've done. Amen.